0: Another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast, and is episode number sixteen. My name, of course, is Alex Reamer. It is our special Memorial Day weekend edition. Where are y'all going? Where are you heading? Going to Palm? <laughs> going to going to Palm Springs? Huh? Fire Island? P Town? Agunquit, Rehoboth Beach? Where are you going? Where's everyone heading for the long weekend? Oh, it's gonna be. Uh, A summer like no other. There's no doubt about that. The front porch, that's the hottest hangout spot, you tell me. But uh, as I said, welcome into the show. We made it through another week of our uh, daily dystopia. Um, If I see any thirst traps post Instagram pictures this weekend, by the way, with face masks on the beach or face mask tan lines, enough harm cannot be done to you as far as I'm concerned. I mean, talk about... Obnoxious. Uh, I'm not saying mask wearing is obnoxious. We all should be doing that. I mean, that's what the experts say. But I'm saying the the, the flaunting of of the mask is this. What now? You have to buy thirty dollar masks to keep up. Does it never end? Does it never end? That's what I. That's what I ask. I have a lot of questions today, and I asked a lot of them to uh, Jack Turbin, who is a clinical fellow in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. I've been dying to talk to Jack. For a long time, ever since he published uh, one of my favorite uh, journalistic pieces uh, about gay men. Uh, We need to talk about how Grindr is affecting gay men's mental health. It was published on Vox, our parent company, in 2018. And so many lines uh, from the story resonate with me so much about how it's like playing the slot machine. It's like gambling People log on because they want to feel good, but they also want to stop feeling bad, and they just keep on with this vicious cycle, and they feel awful about themselves when they're done with the app, and it's just, it's like, wow, this is me, so um, I want to talk to Jack ever since... That piece came out. I'm glad now at this podcast, I have an excuse to do it. Uh, He researches gender and sexuality. He also, you can read him in the New York Times, and he had a recent piece in WBUR, our NPR affiliate here in Boston, uh, about the rise in uh, psychiatric prescription drugs that are being um, written out uh, during this coronavirus time. So really interesting stuff. Great conversation. Talked about a number of things with Jack, including the mental health impact, that the coronavirus lockdown is having on lgbt people and young people in particular Uh, the best safe sex practices during the pandemic which i think is very important to talk about cyber sex and the advantages and disadvantages and dangers to that um also dive into some grinder talk as well off of his article um so i just great conversation was dying to talk to him so hopefully you enjoy it as much as i enjoyed conducting it uh, but before we do that, I do want to give a a plug to our most recent theme week at OutSports and throughout the entire SB Nation family. It was Underdog Week. We had a lot of great stories all week long. Uh, I concluded the series on Friday, yesterday, with a piece about how trans athletes everywhere, in my mind, are the ultimate sports underdog. And I've had this debate um, on another podcast I go on a, a few times recently, and it's just... It's just, you know, when you talk about underdog, they're counted out at one point or folks are rooting and 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 I can't think of, you know, any group of people where that more fits in line more with than the transgender community. I mean, every single day you are an underdog, never mind when you go on the field or the court or the track or the ice or your sport of choice and uh it, it was it just it's it, it's something that I don't think for whatever reason, I can't imagine how the other side can appreciate it. And there's there are two high-profile court cases we have going on right now that we've covered extensively. The fight in Idaho, where the ACLU is hoping is a uh, hoping to issue an injunction. Uh, with the implementation of House Bill 500, a very restrictive bill that would prohibit trans people from participating in sports in accordance to their gender identity. And then also, of course, the lawsuit going on in Connecticut that would prohibit trans student athletes from participating in high school sports based on the success that Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood have had on the track in Connecticut. And the argument in a lot of these cases is it's an unfair advantage. Yearwood and Miller in particular have won like 15 championships, uh, high school state track championships in Connecticut over the last three years, but, you know, one of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit actually beat Terry Miller two times in an eight-day span after filing it, and there is no discernible proof whatsoever that trans athletes, and especially trans girls, have a physical advantage over their cisgender counterparts. I mean, Sid Ziegler, our co-founder, did a piece last year interviewing four trans athletes, all of whom said that transitioning and taking hormones is... They have to work even harder to just keep up with their athletic level than they did before. So there's no evidence, number one, that it's this big advantage in competition. But my argument also is, even if it was a slight advantage, and we found that out, if you're talking about, you know, Olympics, fine. But high school sports, I mean, what, what factors are we weighing? I mean, if you're a trans person— You feel uncomfortable every single day. You find solace on the field. You find solace in your sport. And you don't want people to pursue that happiness. You don't want kids to pursue that happiness. Like, what's wrong with you? Do you really care about the integrity of high school girls track? Or is your fixation on this issue about something else? I'd go with the latter. So just a piece I wanted to write. Appreciate the feedback and the editing system we have at Outsports as well that permitted me to write it. Uh, But Jack Turbin's coming up from Harvard Medical School. I'm sure you've read him. Uh, Great conversation. It's the Sports Kiki episode number 16. And welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with us on the phone line now. Very excited to speak with uh, Jack Turbin. He is uh, a clinical fellow in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School where he researches gender and sexuality and lgbt youth in particular his writing has appeared in new york times and vox our parent company as well uh, jack welcome to the show how are you today
1: i'm great thanks for having me thanks
0: for coming on on this uh, memorial day weekend here um a lot of things i want to hit on with you first i want to start with this uh, anecdote that i read in an npr piece this week the trevor project says its call volume has increased to more than double uh, the volumes from earlier this year. Um, just wondering, especially given your area of expert research, what is the coronavirus mental health impact on LGBT people and young people in particular who may be stuck at home in places where they not may not feel comfortable being out, safe for themselves?
1: Yeah, we've seen that mental health has gotten worse across the board uh, during the pandemic. So calls to crisis hotlines, both for LGBT-focused hotlines and hotlines generally are up. Um, But we are seeing that LGBT youth seem to be particularly vulnerable to mental health problems right now. And I think you're alluding to the big problem, right? As a lot of these young people growing up, they are afraid to come out of the closet and there's a lot of fear around being outed and a lot of shame around their sexual orientation or gender identity. And then they go to college and many of them find these environments where they can be themselves for the first time and they find LGBT friends and they can explore their identity and even find pride in it. A lot of them will talk to a therapist for the first time at college counseling about their gender and sexuality and really start to process those feelings and start to fight some of that shame that society put on them growing up. Unfortunately, with coronavirus, a lot of those kids were kicked off campus and sent back home into these environments where either they're afraid to talk to their families for fear of rejection, or a lot of kids have actually already faced the rejection and they're in pretty hostile environments where Mm -hmm. their family doesn't accept them, or maybe they're even afraid of getting kicked out of the house. Um, So That can be a really isolating experience. Um, a lot of that shame and stigma can come back. Then they've also lost a lot of the outlets that they had to process that. So they're not able to talk to their therapist necessarily or right. not able to talk to their friends or go to an LGBT uh, resource center. Um, you, a lot of psychiatrists have set up telepsychiatry so people can do video conferencing with their therapists or phone appointments. But the thing that makes that hard for LGBT youth at home with their families is that if they're not out to their families, they may not feel safe having that phone call for fear that their parents are going to hear them. Um, So I've told some people to maybe try and take the phone call from their car or go for a walk. But Hmm. understandably, that's just too overwhelming. So a lot of people have fallen out of mental health care.
0: And that and that's really sad and one of the many ramifications and not just young people but you know older LGBT people are I read a study are more likely uh, to be lonely than the general population and you know I think in general even people you know I'm 27 a lot of folks my age who live in the city I think of my friends in New York who went back to their parents to ride out the coronavirus and they have accepting families and they are comfortable who they are but You know, they also, in a lot of cases, I think, for gay people in particular, the chosen family, you're closer to them than your biological family by, you know, for a variety of reasons. And now you're discouraged from seeing them. So, I mean, I I think that, you know, do you think social distancing and this physical distancing has been particularly tough on the LGBT community as
1: a whole? Definitely. There was a paper in The Lancet, one of the biggest medical journals, uh, I want to say it was last month or the month before, but they they basically looked at all pandemics in history and found that humans don't do well during pandemics. Um, and their mental Shocking. health gets worse, <laughs> and the, right? And, and the isolation is one of the big things that makes their mental health worse. Um, they found that two things are protect, protective against mental health problems during pandemics. The first is getting accurate health information. And right, that applies to everyone. So don't listen to Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz and try and get your information from the CDC. Damn it. Um, and having access to accurate health information can help people. I don't think we did a great job of that for LGBT people early on in the pandemic. So we weren't talking about things like, what do you do with PrEP during the pandemic? How do you think about sexual risk? Um, how do we think about mental health as people might be on LGBT-focused dating or hookup apps more often? Um, so we're just now starting to get more information out to people about those things, which hopefully as they, they know more what's going on and know what to do and feel like they have more control um, with accurate information, hopefully that will help. The other thing that they found in that study that's important is that people have social connections. Um, And as your social connection drops off, people's mental health tends to get worse. Um, What they didn't bring up as much is that for LGBT people, we need certain kinds of social connection, right? We need affirming social connection that validates our sexual orientation or gender identities. um, Because certain types of social connection, like what you're describing, um, ones that don't really understand or support your lgbti identity those aren't going to fulfill you in the same way as what you get from your chosen family in these communities that really understand what you've been going through
0: it can almost feel like you know just talking to some of my friends who have wrote this out with their parents so again they have great nice relationships with but it can seem like you're kind of going back in time like to a time where you're in your childhood bedroom and you're too afraid to meet guys or women or what have you and you're on an app and that's your world now. It, it can seem like you're like regressing emotionally, I think, to some.
1: Yeah, and even for people who are out to their families and who have accepting families, yeah. um, gay culture is a unique thing, right? Um, and there are a lot of complicated dynamics in it. Body image problems, racial dynamics, hookup dynamics, intimacy questions. And these aren't things that people feel comfortable talking to their families about, um, right? Cause their parents don't live in the gay community. So they may not sure. understand it in the same way. So a lot of those, those conflicts that people experience in the LGBT community, they're not able to process with their family the same way they could, if they still had access to their chosen family.
0: It's just so different. And I think this line actually was in the piece you wrote for Vox about Grindr. Um, when you sexualize and socialize with the same group of people, as gay men in particular do, it it really uh, complicates the dynamics that I think people who aren't in that community have a hard time understanding. I mean, hell, I have a hard time understanding it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly not something you want to talk to your parents about. No, that's
0: for sure. That's for sure. Um, So I I do want to get to a paper you you put out about um, best safe sex practices um, for uh, people during a pandemic coronavirus? What were some of those suggestions that you have?
1: Yeah, so the hard thing about the coronavirus is that it, it spreads through aerosols. So when you speak, the little saliva particles can carry the virus. And then the, the data is kind of going back and forth, but it, but it does seem that the virus can live on common surfaces and and be stable there for days um so almost any kind of sexual activity is going to put you at a risk of transmission right because it's hard to even be near someone and not have those respiratory particles floating around being on your skin um so if you look at it scientifically really the best recommendation is abstinence to not have sex at all um but we know from research for decades that giving recommendations of abstinence to people is not helpful, right? right. Um, we tried it in in schools and in pregnancy, unintended pregnancy rates go up. Um, it was a recommendation that was out there during the HIV pandemic and led to a lot of shame and a lot of stigma, particularly for LGBT people. Um, so people, we're starting to make those recommendations now, um, but they're kind of dangerous, right? So, particularly for LGBT people who lived during the AIDS crisis, hearing a message of abstinence is probably going to worsen their mental health, make them more anxious, make them more depressed, make yeah. them feel more of that stigma they felt in the past. And paradoxically, that often results in people trying to self soothe those feelings with sex. and then they're having more unprotected sex, and we've kind of been counterproductive. Um, so what we talked about in the article that we published in the Annals of Internal Medicine was risk reduction strategies. So, so for, again, the best thing, if you can be asthma from sex, great, that's going to be the lowest risk. We also talked about how people could have more sex, um, using the phone or video chat applications, kind of sex from a distance is obviously safer. we talked about how if people are going to do that though to be mindful of things like that people can take screenshots or people can record videos and there are risks of sexual extortion um and things like that that people should be mindful of that they're not doing this with people they don't trust necessarily um also for adolescents in particular who are sexually active it's important for them to know about sexual extortion Also, to know about things like relevant laws where if they have pictures of other minors on their phone, they could be prosecuted for child pornography charges. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are a lot of a lot of complicated dynamics in those recommendations. And then also we recognize some people, um, it's just not going to be realistic for them to stop having in-person sex despite extensive counseling and knowing the risk. Um, So for those people, we recommend wearing masks during sexual encounters, washing your hands, showering before and after sex, and being mindful that those respiratory particles can live on any surface, so also disinfecting and cleaning the environment where sex is happening. Um, I can send you the link to the paper if you're able to um, put in the information and people can read more yeah. about some of those recommendations. No, it's
0: it's very helpful. I mean, I would say wearing masks during sex. I mean, that sounds fun. Number one. Uh, number two, showering. <laughs> I mean, that's normal, Jack. I mean, that doesn't seem so bad. Uh, no, but in, there's a few things So I want to go from there. Um, I guess the, 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 the first thing I would bring up is uh, pro, you were talking about uh, about the risk of online. Uh, the FBI says that sexual predation online has increased during this, right? So, so that risk is even higher now than it was.
1: Yes, so especially for young people and this risk has been around for a long time. Um, from my perspective, the big problem is that as a society, we have not created enough safe spaces for LGBT young people to explore their gender and sexuality in a developmentally appropriate way, right? So as a young gay, lesbian or bisexual person, if you're closeted, you're probably not gonna have a high school prom. You're not gonna have like a classroom Valentine. Or you'll go with the a girl and practice physically distancing. Do.
0: Or you'll go with a girl like I did and practice physical distancing long before the coronavirus time.
1: So yes, for different reasons. That's yes. something we all did in yes. high school. Um, But because because kids don't have that place to explore, a lot of them go online, right? It feels safer and more discreet and anonymous. But when you go online, um, like for instance, I was writing a New York Times article about this, and I just Googled gay chat room. And when you go to the first one that comes up on Google um, and watch the conversations that are happening, it's full of adults soliciting minors for um, webcam sex right? So it's really not a developmentally appropriate place for these kids to explore. No. A lot of them also go on Grindr. Um, so there was a paper in the Journal of Adolescent Health a few years ago that found that one in four uh, gay and bisexual boys um, between say 13 and 17 are on hookup apps like Grindr. Um, almost wow. 70% of them are having sex with people that they meet on the application, many of which probably are adults right? these apps are designed for adults, and only 25% of them are using condoms. Um, and so that, right, is clearly a high-risk situation. And then, like you were saying, during coronavirus, um, both Europol and the FBI have issued warnings to parents, pointing out that online sexual predators are more active right now. Um, and on web forums where these predators talk to each other, they are pointing out that they know that kids are at home more and they are more socially isolated and they're going online more. And so these sexual predators are are kind of expecting that they're going to have more opportunities to sexually exploit kids online, Um, which is obviously horrifying to think about. But for parents who are listening and thinking about this, the best thing you can do is have open conversations with your kids about the risk um, of this happening online. What tends to happen is that as kids are being sexually exploited online, they, they experience a lot of shame because they think of sex and particularly being LGBT as as shameful. It's something mm-hmm. they can't talk to their parents about. So these, these, um. Conversations they have with abusers can can escalate more and more and more and and get worse and worse and the kids are afraid to tell anyone because they think that they'll be blamed that they're the ones doing something wrong, when obviously that's not true, right? The person who's doing something wrong is this this online predator. Yeah. Um, so the more parents can talk to their kids about that risk and and tell them that it's safe to talk to me as your parents about sex. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to think differently of you. Um, sex is, is normal and it's normal to to think about sex. Um, the more kids may be able to, to feel less of that shame and talk to adults to, to stay out of these dangerous situations.
0: And just so I have you right, did you say that, uh, one in 13 boys, was it 14 to 17 are on Grindr? 70% of whom are having sex? 25%
1: okay. of, of teenage Teenagers. gay and bisexual boys are on the app. Okay seventy percent, seventy yeah between thirteen and seventeen, so okay for some very young kids okay. um almost seventy percent of them are having sex with people
0: right. on the app Wow
1: and of those only twenty five percent are using condoms oh. so it's really a sizable number of kids um, wow who are on these apps who are having sex and who are not having safe sex
0: Wow so a quarter a quarter of LGBT kids that's that are, are on them and that's so uh, that's that's incredible but I mean I can totally see it you know even though I'm sure kids these days are you know, I guess more accepting than when you were in high school. It still certainly, I think, can be stigmatizing. And you know about you know kind of grinders' negative mental health effects. You again have written pretty extensively about this. Like you know the the allure that a lot of people say, and this was in your Vox article, is that it's not just the rush to feel good; it's the rush to stop feeling bad. And users, and I do it too. You log on when you feel anxious or lonely, and people feel lonely now, but you know, now you're on there and you're discouraged from meetings. So it's just, it just seems like it plays even more into that vicious cycle.
1: Definitely. People are more anxious. People are more depressed. And we know that many LGBT people, when they feel anxious and depressed, often what they're longing for in some conscious or unconscious way is some sort of affirmation for their LGBT identity because growing up they were told it was wrong. Um, and that really leaves kind of a psychological scar that a lot of people for decades might be searching for that affirmation. And Grindr seems like a place you might be able to get that, right? It's full of other LGBT people. Presumably, they're going to be affirming of your LGBT identity. The problem is that it's a very sexualized platform, right? As much as, and it's true that some people, are on there in a non-sexualized way and um for that box article i talked to people who met their their husbands on their formed long-term romantic relationships sure. um but at the end of the day most of the pictures are shirtless torsos and you can filter by sexual position and it is a sexualized platform um so people go on looking for kind of a deeper form of emotional affirmation but what they get is more just this is sex often. And then a lot of times after sex, that person just leaves and that can feel like rejection and makes the person more anxious and depressed and bring up more of those feelings of of stigma and shame. And then one person I talked to said that he does that, feels that shame, goes back on the app, has sex again, feels more shame, goes back on the app and and he said he would be on there for like up to 12 hours a day in this vicious cycle.
0: And I wonder, I wonder if he's still meeting people now, or if he's just endlessly chatting and exchanging pictures. Either way, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it certainly, uh, certainly can be detrimental. But um, as someone who's had both cyber sex and real sex, you know, when you said earlier, uh, Jack, that you know abstinence is the safest way, and cyber sex is a good alternative. In my mind, I was screaming, you know, well, cyber sex is not actually sex. I mean, at one point, does it become a thing where? It, You know, it's like, it's not fulfilling in the same way. So I guess, you know, if you don't have a partner right now, it can be hard to go three, four, five, six months without, you know, any actual sex. I mean, cyber sex just doesn't doesn't quite cut it for that long. So what what would you advise there is I guess it's just wait and see or?
1: Yeah, I think what we tried to recognize in this article is that there's a spectrum of what people are going to be able to tolerate. So some people will be able to have complete abstinence and be okay. Some people will be able to have just cyber sex and be okay. Some people won't. So some people are still going to have in-person sex. Um, Probably some people are still going to have anonymous sex, Um, but we list. Um, risk reduction things that people can do. those small things we're talking about like showering, washing your hands, wearing a mask. There's there's some data um, that particular fluids are more likely to carry the virus. Um, So some data seems to suggest that um, like fecal material can harbor the virus. Um, So sex acts that have the risk of kind of fecal oral transmission may be more risky, so you may want to try and avoid that. Um, But again, I can send you the paper and and there's a nice table in there where people can read um, kind of the spectrum of sexual activity from least risky to most risky, try and figure out what they're able to achieve. And then depending on where they are on that table, there are a list of recommendations to um, keep what they're doing as safe as it can be to reduce their risk as much as they can.
0: Yeah. And, you know, obviously throughout this, uh, our federal leadership has been immensely disappointing for so many reasons. But I've also been disappointed in some of our, you know, governors and mayors who have instituted these lockdown orders without talking about risk reduction, not just sexually, but even in social settings. I mean, you know, I've said before, preaching stay at home only is kind of like we were saying earlier, preaching abstinence only to teenagers. It's just, it's this all or nothing approach. Like, I've, I've been disappointed that, again, not just in terms of sex, but just everything, that we haven't had our leaders now come out with more risk reduction strategies and or at least getting that message out there, because that really seems like the best way if, if this is the quote unquote new normal for a while.
1: Definitely. Um, Julia Marcus is an epidemiologist yes. at Harvard Medical School and had a great article in the Atlantic recently um, where she points out exactly this. Um, it's not just sexual risk, but but a lot of things carry risk for getting coronavirus right now. But um, starting off, people, yeah, like you were saying, it was very binary in black and white, right? Either you, you're you social distancing or you're not. But but really there are, it's a continuum, um, right? So there's, they're staying at home talking to no one on one end of the continuum. And then on the other hand is maybe going to a really crowded indoor place where everyone's Correct. talking and not wearing masks. Yeah, those spring break videos that we saw. Um, but there are things in between there, right? So wearing a mask and going for a walk with just people that you know really well from your house, um, or having an outdoor gathering where people are six feet away. Really, the, the two fac- or the few factors that come in are kind of indoor versus outdoor, right? Outdoor is less risky than indoor. Um, number of people, the more people there are, the more risky it is. Um, and so I can also send you, she made a great information graphic and also that Atlantic article really lays it out well because there's there's a spectrum and there are risk reduction techniques that people can take when they're not able to achieve these really lofty goals that um, some politicians have set out
0: yeah oh, it's a great article i read it it's, it's absolutely fantastic uh, my last question for you jack and thanks for the time is as we go on here what area in terms of your research are you most fascinated about seeing how this affects lgbt people and youth in particular
1: yeah i'm a- Interested personally in how public policies uh influence outcomes, so I'm hoping that more and more people will look at the implementation of sending out these risk reduction messages or the implementation of requiring certain social distancing protocols. Um, people are also starting to collect data on how many LGBT people in particular are getting COVID-19. So originally they weren't collecting that data, so we weren't able to know right. if LGBT people were at a higher risk, but more and more there's been pressure to do that. Um, so I'm hoping we can start to really have an evidence-based, data-based approach to look at which of these recommendations and policies are most effective. And hope I'm hoping that people will invest um, the time and the data collection into understanding LGBT people in particular and trying to keep them safe.
0: Jack, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it, man.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for covering this and for, for having me. So
0: thank you all for tuning in to another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast. In all honesty, uh, I am humbled whenever I receive feedback from people saying they enjoy the show. Uh, these are really one-man bands, the podcasts we do out sports. We record them. We edit them. Uh, we book the interviews. Uh, so to hear that, you know, like, I'm in my basement right now, shh recording. (laughs) And to hear that people really enjoy these shows um, is awesome. It feels great. It's what keeps us going. So keep it coming. And as I mentioned every week, if you have any guest suggestions, please let me know. AlexReamer1 is my Twitter handle. That again, AlexReamer1. Uh, Against my best judgment, my DMs are open. So if you have any ideas about topics, guests, let me know. Would love to uh, entertain it. And Give you shows that you want to listen to, because that's what it's all about. So, so long. Thanks again to Jack Turbin for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the weekend.